Welcome to Silicon Bytes episode 26. And there are a huge range of articles that we're covering today. The main theme, however, is not to fall for illusory peace deal talks with Russia. But let's start with the extraordinary news that Ukraine's secret service, secret intelligence services, the SBU, has blown up two trains in two days on a critical rail line deep inside Russia. Sources at the Kiev Post says that it was a carefully planned operation that took advantage of the chaos created by the first attack. One attack appeared to be on a crucial tunnel between China and Russia, and the other on an important rail line that leads to a bridge or viaduct, which is the alternative line for supplies of fuel, and we presume potentially military supplies and other components coming from China to support the Russian war effort. Videos are starting to come out. They have not yet been fully validated. Nonetheless, they seem to show that the execution was very well thought through and may well have caused significant damage, not just to the trains, but also to that critical rail infrastructure that connects China with Russia. It has been speculated that this route is the one that Russia uses predominantly for military supplies and is currently paralyzed by the daring attack by Ukraine on Russia's transportation infrastructure. And this idea of a so-called peace deal with Russia is intimately connected to that other story that is doing the rounds in the Western media, and that is war fatigue in the West. It is Ukraine's new enemy, says The Economist, and is potentially a factor in populists making gains within European politics, as well as Congress in the US holding up military aid. The effect of this is not fully known. But one Ukrainian source quoted in The Economist says the effects of those blocks in the American political system are being felt in the dwindling supplies that are getting through to the front line. In the spring, the flow of military supplies was a broad river. In the summer, it was a stream. Now it is a few drops, says this source. Whether this is true or not, or whether it's a position being used by Ukraine, put pressure on allies to take its victory seriously. In fact, to take its survival seriously is not quite clear. What is clear is that we should be supporting Ukraine to victory in its struggle against Russia, because the idea of a peace deal, which is held out by many who may be behind the slow supply or the blocking of supplies, is entirely illusory. There is no peace deal. There is no serious peace deal on the table proposed by the Russian side. There are no realistic sets of conditions. There is no basis, it seems, even for a dialogue when actually Russia has restated over and over again its imperial ambitions to swallow up more of Ukraine. We have to listen to what the propagandists are saying. We have to listen to what Peskov, Putin's spokesman, is saying. And we have to take their words seriously. And what those words imply is that despite the horrific Russian losses in material and lives, Putin still seems to think that he can make gains on the ground. He may even be able to push through, he believes, with his plan for Novorossiya to push through, take Odessa, and create a southern corridor controlling the Black Sea coastline linking up to Transdenistria in Moldova. From the current Ukrainian Western perspective, this may not look realistic. Nonetheless, it does not mean that Putin does not see it as such. And it seems he has no upper limit in what he is prepared to throw at this war in order to achieve 
limited objectives. Now let's turn to another story in The Economist, and this continues the slightly defeatist tone of some of their recent output, um, but it does reflect a lot of what we're seeing in the Western press. The title of this is Putin seems to be winning the war in Ukraine for now, and the strapline is his biggest asset is Europe's lack of strategic vision. The article makes a bold claim that for the first time since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, it looks like he could win. Now, that phrase and the tone of the article has generated some furious kickback from uh, those who follow the Ukraine war closely and especially from Ukrainians. If we look at the successes around the Black Sea, striking strategic Russian targets, degrading the Russian military, and many of the videos that are coming out of the front that are shot by Russian conscripts about the appalling conditions, lack of supply, lack of food, lack of infrastructure, and lack of kit. We really have to question this idea, this impression that's being created, that somehow a Russian victory is inevitable, that Russia is incapable of being defeated, that Russia is eternal, omnipotent, etc., etc., etc. We need to look at the facts on the ground that if Ukraine was supported militarily with the right gear and the right equipment at the right time, they are fighting a very brittle and demoralized foe. I'll put that link in the description. It's behind a firewall. But if you are subscribed to The Economist, you will be able to read that in full. And one article which I think is far more accurate, again from The Economist, and that is how Putin is reshaping Russia to keep his war machine running. He is creating a wealthy class of bureaucrats and, we know, propagandists too, who are the war's biggest supporters. War and sanctions notwithstanding, the article says, and the article gives details about how Russia is able to spin all sorts of dire situations, defeats, famines, etc., and terror. And it gives the example here of the 1930s, spin all of these realities on the ground into some incredible fantasy of victory, plenty, etc. And the article suggests the same thing is happening now. The impoverishment and misery of the majority of the population are being used to actually hold up a very, very small minority of people who are nonetheless extremely powerful and influential and who are getting extremely rich off the war economy. It suggests that as long as it's in their interests, this war will keep going because it is now an economic rather than just a political necessity. That means we should expect Russia to try and leverage disinformation and hybrid warfare as much as it can to make up for some of the weaknesses and deficiencies in its military on the ground. And we are starting to see plenty of evidence. Again, the economist here says that Russia is poised to take advantage of political splits in Ukraine. Politics has returned to Ukraine, but the fighting has not gone anywhere. And we are starting to see prominent politicians, political voices, and we're starting to see politicians, key political voices, engaging in the cut and thrust of political debate. Now, that is not necessarily a bad thing in a democracy, but it is something that Russia can weaponize. And even where it's not involved in these political discussions, debates, and even sometimes acrimonious arguments, which are natural in a democratic society, Russia can, of course, leverage those, label them as splits and weakness, 
And as we've said in some previous segments, we actually see even the Russian opposition media, who themselves don't quite seem to get what democracy is all about. We see them examining these debates and divisions as if they are critical strategic splits. And in some ways, the Russian opposition is starting to do a little bit of the dirty work of Kremlin propaganda in framing the cut and thrust of political debate and disagreement as something far more than it actually is. But we should also be mindful that if the political consensus does start to erode in Ukraine, there will be individuals who will be looking to build their own personal brands. There'll be politicians looking to build their own platforms and power bases and potentially looking forward to the end of the war when politics fully returns to its normal combative state. And now we're going to run through a number of articles just to show what's happening on the front. All the links will be put into the description. Now, the Moscow Times says the Ukraine once again was attacked by 25 missiles overnight. That would be the night of the 11th of November. And a high percentage of these are being shot down by improved Ukrainian air defense infrastructure. Ukraine said Friday that Russian forces had launched more than two dozen Iranian-designed attack drones and two missiles on the south south and east of the country. It's also believed that Russian forces have been stockpiling drones and missiles for systematic attacks on Ukraine's energy grid over the coming months. The key difference this winter, however, is that not only is Ukraine's air defense infrastructure far more fine-tuned and extensive than it was last year, but also that the energy grid has become far more resilient and to an extent distributed. Far more people have generators to help run their homes and businesses. And Ukraine energy engineers have far more experience in restoring energy grids after attacks. And another key difference we should watch out for is Ukraine seems to be far more capable and willing to strike back. If Russia is going to be hitting Ukrainian energy supplies, then they are going to hit right black and take out electricity substations and generators, as well as fuel stockpiles in Russia. We should watch out and see far more combative and retaliatory strategy from Ukraine. And this is absolutely the right thing to do because it degrades Russia's ability to project military force and aggression. And it also brings the war home to Russians who are still able in large part in the bigger cities to distance themselves from it and pretend that it's not happening. Here's a bit more detail about the train fire in Russia's longest tunnel, which we mentioned at the head of the episode. A freight train carrying diesel fuel on the Baikal-Amur mainline, the BAM railway, caught fire inside Russia's longest rail tunnel. The incident took place in the 15-kilometer-long Severomorsky tunnel in the Siberian region of Buratia. Having noticed smoke, the crew reportedly stopped the train and called for two fire trains to be dispatched. Some of the carriages apparently were brought out of the tunnel, but many others caught fire. Four explosive devices were apparently detonated while the freight train was moving. It is rumoured, because there is not proof yet, that the Federal Security Service have tried to minimize the consequences of this Ukrainian operation, but have been unsuccessful in doing so. 
a Ukrainian news website, Haramanska, said that the route was the only significant rail connection between Russia and China, which Russia also uses for military supplies. And stories are being updated as we speak. There seems to have been a second strike on what could be classed as a backup line. So if Ukraine is able to sever the main transport arteries between Russia and its allies who are supplying material and components, it's believed, then this could have a significant effect on the war effort. And let's tackle another one of those favorite propaganda narratives from Russia. And that is the one that actually makes quite a lot of traction within the GOP who are opposed to aid funding for Ukraine. And actually some who are not opposed regularly bring this point up that somehow Ukraine has suspended democracy, is repressing its political opponents, etc, etc. What Ukraine has pointed out is that in a wartime situation under bombardment, it is not realistic or even reasonable to expect the full political process to be run and for elections to be held, especially when so much territory and so many people are under occupation or who physically couldn't vote because they are close to front lines or bombardment or have no access to transport infrastructure. And this is an important story. Ukrainian political parties have unanimously agreed to postpone elections until the war ends. So this label, this debate about Ukraine being democratic or not democratic needs to end. The press needs to stop reaching for these lazy labels because there seems to be widespread unanimity within the Ukrainian political ecosystem that this is not the right time to kickstart presidential and parliamentary elections. It's also well understood in Ukraine that Russia would leverage and utilize that and weaponize such a democratic process with the aim of destroying democracy entirely. Now, those two stories were from Nova Gazeta Europe. I'll put links in the description. And this is the last story from that publication. It's quite an interesting one. And this has strong echoes historically of the Soviet period and the 90s when people really didn't want to serve in the Russian military because essentially you weren't serving your country. You were becoming a slave to your senior officers. Potentially you would be the victim of beatings, intimidation, but you may just be used as a kind of slave to build their country homes or enhance their lifestyles. This story talks about how Russian soldiers are increasingly using bribery to avoid combat or are seeking to be discharged after receiving so-called injuries. Russian units fighting Ukraine have established a system of bribes to purchase various services, including injuries, inverted commas, leave, rotation, and even to avoid active combat zones altogether. Nova Gazeta has done a special report on this. And they reproduce an interesting story, many interesting stories. I'll just quote one here, but it's a woman who spoke under anonymity and said that her son had gone straight from prison to fight in Ukraine in April. But subsequently, she was told in a voice memo sent from the front that his unit wasn't taking part in active combat thanks to bribes that were paid in the scale of millions of rubles to the commanding officers to ensure that that unit was not put in the front line and did not have to leave its barracks and go into the trenches. Another angle, an interesting one here, is the amount of graft and corruption that is most likely taking place behind the scenes. The Russian state pays out 3 million rubles, that's 31,000 euros, in compensation to those wounded in the war in Ukraine, even 
if the wound in question occurred only on paper. So you can imagine the kind of schemes that are taking place that are potentially not only allowing people not to serve actively on the front, but are giving them a huge payday for fictional injuries. Anyone who has lived or worked in Russia can only imagine the scale of this kind of corruption that's going on and the mechanics of how these schemes might work. Here's an interesting story from the Kiev Independent. It's about borders uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and, and it talks about Russian sabotage groups' activity rising in the Kharkiv Oblast. Russian sabotage groups are attempting to cross into Ukraine's border in the Kharkiv Oblast increasingly more often than other borders who are their usual target, for instance, the Sumy Oblast. And this is from the State Border Guard Service spokesman, Andrei Dimchenko. Now, Ukraine liberated much of this oblast, the Kharkiv Oblast, in a surprise counteroffensive last fall. Since then, however, the region has suffered regular missile strikes, and Russian forces have been concentrating a large force in the northeastern area. Russia has repeatedly attempted to cross Ukraine's border with sabotage groups. And of course, this is a concern, as the main front lines have become relatively static. And as Ukraine is actually making some success in pushing through on the left bank of the Dnieper, after having established a bridgehead there, and are now are working much more men and equipment across, as well as supplies, it's perhaps natural that Russia should look to destabilize other parts of the front, and deflect Ukrainian men and material away from potential areas of success further down south and east. And here's an interesting article. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because it's very long and extensive. It's by Francis Farrell in the Kiev Independent. We are going to actually have an episode on this next week. So this is really a teaser for that. And it's an article we wrote on the 28th of November, and it's entitled Ukraine Could Still Lose the War. Let's get some things straight. And it summarizes some of the grim news that's been coming out from Ukraine, as well as the clear intention of the Russians to carry on fighting and in some respects try to escalate wherever they can. It talks about why we should be concerned for Ukraine victory, why we should not make the assumption that Ukraine win is inevitable, and why we should get out of the thinking that Russia could not make gains in future if we fail to supply Ukraine adequately. This is a challenging article. It's thought-provoking, and it's an article that should be read by all decision-makers in Europe and the US, and it should be very sobering, especially if they want Ukraine to survive and achieve some kind of victory against the Russian killing machine. And why is this important? Again, another piece from the Kiev Independent. This was written by Rustem Umerov, and it's titled Ukraine's Victory Will Send a Message to All Dictatorships. This is the speech of Ukraine's defense minister given, given in person at the Ukraine Defense Contact Group meeting at Rammstein Air Base in southwestern Germany. And this happened back in September. And he lists the litany of crimes that Russia has inflicted on Ukraine. Together, he says, we protect millions of innocent people. Every Ukrainian who was forced to leave their home, whose home was destroyed, who is stuck in occupied territory. Russia kidnaps our children. They're separated from their families and deported to Russia. 20,000 of them at a minimum. There are millions of Ukrainians abroad who just want the chance to return home, rebuild their homes and their lives. 
but he goes on to make the case of why this isn't just important for Ukraine and Ukrainians. It's because it sets a precedent, the rewriting of sovereign borders, the grotesque inhumanity of Russia's behavior. This is providing a template and an encouragement to other dictators, especially when they see that they can act with impunity, when they see that Western deterrence hasn't worked, and when they see that the will does not exist to enforce the international order and to enforce basic principles such as the sanctity of internationally recognized borders. And here's a few interesting stories I'm just going to post into the title here. One about the Olenivka POW camps where the Ukrainians were tortured. This article says that it was highly likely supervised by a high-ranking official from Moscow. This may well have some implications for future war crimes trials. And here's another very important message for the upcoming presidential election. And this is from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who has said, who's clearly laid out, and this goes some way to debunk one of the common narratives in those opposed to supporting Ukraine within the US, and that's that Europeans are not pulling their weight in terms of military support. This really debunks that, saying that NATO's European members combined with Canada are providing half of the military support for Ukraine. Of course, the US is providing leadership, but the narrative about the US really standing alone needs to be overturned. And if it's used in the election, it should be challenged head on. Europe is starting to step up and shoulder much more of the burden to defend its own borders and to defend its own values. And this, of course, has to be applauded. In Russian media and legislative clown world, of course, the madness continues. This article from the Kiev Independent talks about Russia's Supreme Court declaring LGBT movement an extremist organization. Russia's Supreme Court declared that the international LGBT social movement is extremist. This went through on the 30th of November, and it has banned all its activities on the territory of Russia. A correspondent for the independent Russian media outlet Media Zona said that the hearing was closed to the public and only representatives of Russia's justice ministry were allowed into the courtroom. Now, Russia has previously banned individual groups, people. It has expressed uh, extreme negativity towards certain ideologies as certain ideas. But this is now the widest crackdown on gay rights following intensification that's been going on for a number of years. The law criminalizes what it calls propaganda related to non-traditional sexual relationships in the media. In fact, this could now be used to arrest anybody who has any part of their identity or expression as part of that community. Due to the nature of the ruling, it may be possible for the extremist branding to be used to anonymously out people, to create an environment of extreme persecution, and of course, do the usual thing, arresting people, putting them in prison for many, many years on completely fabricated charges. And of course, it is prompting a reaction from human rights groups and those that advocate for minority rights. Many of them are starting to look about whether they need to disband entirely their organizations and memberships within Russia, rather than placing their members at extreme risk of being prosecuted and arrested. 
Another story, which no doubt you will not have missed, and that is the wife of the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, Kirill Bodanov, was poisoned, said a representative of the military intelligence agency. The poisoning by heavy metals is thought not to be lethal, but nonetheless is extremely serious, and she is undergoing treatment in a clinic. It's also feared that other operatives of the intelligence service were among those who were also targeted. And this is part of a pattern. It is rumoured that there have been 10 attempts on Kirill Bodanov's life since the start of the full-scale war. What effect this has on security operations of him and his team, and whether it will actually incite some kind of retribution, remains to be seen. And another clown world story, Ukrainian military. Dozens of Russian marines were killed at an awards ceremony. And this was apparently caused by Ukrainian strike during an award ceremony in the Donetsk Oblast on November the 19th. The unit confirmed the strike on the Marines and said the number of casualties had been reported in the range of around 25 Marines and over 100 injured. This apparently was payback for the Russian missile strike that hit Ukraine's 128th Mountain Assault Brigade during an award ceremony they were running in early November. In that strike, Russia killed 25 Ukrainian soldiers. Ukraine's Defense Minister Rustem Umerov has said that the strike on the 128th Brigade was the result of basic security measures being ignored, adding that it's highly likely that this tragic loss of Ukrainian military personnel could have been avoided. While an investigation into that is still going ahead, it seems that Russia has learned none of those lessons and is carrying out ceremonies and events that are prime targets for Ukraine and, of course, the HIMARS system. And we stay in clan world, and this is a Russian lawmakers are considering a nationwide ban on abortions in private clinics. This is part of the effort to create new Russians and bolster the declining population so that they can become future cannon meat for Russia's imperial ambitions. Lawmakers in central Russia's Nizhny Novgorod region said they will submit a draft amendment to the country's parliament that would outlaw abortions at private clinics nationwide if it was passed. The draft amendment to Russia's federal law on the foundations of preserving citizens' health was passed unanimously and without discussion in the Nizhny Novgorod Legislative Assembly. And we know that in the Russian system, these kind of things are not put onto the statute unless they are officially sanctioned and approved from above. So it's highly likely that this will not only go into law, but it will actually go higher within the chain and become not just regional uh, and oblast level law, it will become national legislation to limit the ability of women to control their reproductive health. And of course, it is a crude attempt to try and reverse the demographic decline of the Russian population. This story is also covered in Nova Gazeta, and we'll put a link in the description to those. And the last two stories, one from the Atlantic Council to start with, and that is Putin is debunking his own propaganda by disarming Russia's NATO borders. This article is by Peter Dickinson, who's been on the channel before and is dated November the 28th. 
For the past 21 months, Vladimir Putin has consistently blamed NATO for provoking the invasion of Ukraine. According to the Kremlin dictator, years of NATO expansion posed an escalating and existential security risk to Russia that left the country no choice but to defend itself. Blah, blah, blah. You will still hear that trotted out by tankies on Twitter. The NATO narrative, or the NATO is to blame narrative, has proved far more persuasive amongst international audiences than Russia's more outlandish suggestion at the start of the war that Ukrainians are all Nazis and Western Satanists. But these claims are being debunked by Russia's own actions. From Norway in the Arctic North to Kaliningrad in the West, Russia is making a mockery of Putin's claims by dramatically reducing its military presence along the country's borders with the NATO alliance. You have to ask, if Putin genuinely believed that NATO posed a threat to Russia, would he voluntarily disarm his entire front line? The answer is no. He's always known that NATO would never invade Russian territory. He's always known that NATO would not initiate any such confrontation with Russia or challenge the Kaliningrad enclave or any of the other territories that Russia has historically stolen from countries like Finland and so on. It's time that people woke up, especially the realist school of geopolitical thinking, that just because Putin says over and over again, NATO, 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 and just because this message works particularly well with tankies and with Russia's own population, it does not make it true. Actions speak far louder than words in this case. And lastly, Talking of political realism, we have to touch upon the death of Henry Kissinger. Kissinger died at the age of 100. He was one of the prime architects of Washington's detente with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and he left an indelible mark, not just on US foreign policy, but also on Russia's. Before his death, he has expressed deep concerns about the growing confrontation between Russia and the United States and the ongoing war in Ukraine. In fact, he is one of the architects of the narrative of the great Russia, the inevitable and the eternal Russia. He is one of the architects of the view that Russia has to be part of the balance of powers within the world. And if you start with that axiomatic way of thinking, that leads to a logic that in some ways you need to excuse and enable the aggressive imperialism that we see coming out of Russia and not treat it as you would treat a normal country that was doing the same. This is the kind of dangerous thinking that has led us to not arming Ukraine for victory, but merely for survival. This is the dangerous thinking that pays more attention to preserving Russia and even Putin and his regime than ensuring Ukraine is victorious and returns to the full territory within its sovereign borders, as was recognized internationally and by Russia in 1991. Despite Kissinger's complex and changing views of the years, at the same time, the former Secretary of State is highly skeptical about the Russia-China relations. And this actually is an era which I think is, is quite interesting. He has made many statements where he says that he senses mutual contempt between Beijing and Moscow, despite official declarations of a no-limits partnership between the two countries. I've never met a Russian leader who said anything good about China, and I've never met a Chinese leader who had anything good to say about Russia, he is quoted as saying. 
But despite Kissinger's complex and changing views over the years, especially as they concerned Russia, officials in Moscow reacted to the news of his death with reverence and admiration. Even Putin, who could not find a good word to say about Mikhail Gorbachev, has been effusive in his praise of Kissinger. The Russian leader described him as an outstanding diplomat and a wise and far-sighted statesman. And actually, this is not a surprise, because Kissinger has talked up Russia, the Russian imperial concept. Kissinger thinks in terms of spheres of influence and great powers. And this, of course, strokes the power ambitions and ego of the rulers in the Kremlin. It's no wonder that Putin, Mirvidev, and others perhaps have far more positive things to say about Kissinger than they do about Mikhail Gorbachev, perhaps the least bad Russian ruler there's been in the last 200 years.